I'm going to begin by going to uh, John chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, we'll turn to John 5. And we've been talking about the Sabbath for the past couple of weeks. And I want to enter into a new arena here in regards to the Sabbath. And entitle this lesson, Yeshua's View of the Sabbath. Okay? The, the opening text I want to go to is John 5, 1 through 18. John 5, beginning at verse 1. After this, a Judahite or Jewish festival took place. And Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. By the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a multitude of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water, because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Yeshua saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have a man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Get up, Yeshua told him. Pick up your bedroll and walk. Instantly the man got well, picked up his bedroll, and started to walk. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Judahites said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your bedroll. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your bedroll and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your bedroll and walk, they asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was, because Yeshua had slipped away into the crowd that was there. After this, Yeshua found him in the temple complex and said to him, See, you are well. Do not sin any more, so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The man went and reported to the Judahites that it was Yeshua who had made him well. Therefore, the Judahites began persecuting Yeshua because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Yeshua responded to them, My father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Judahites began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Yahweh bless his word to our hearts. If there's one thing that I learned this past week in studying diligently this text of Scripture, or one thing that I learned any time I study diligently the Scriptures, is that the more that I think that I know, the more I find out I don't know, Sister Lace. <laughs> I feel like I know a lot, but you know the Bible says knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. So I want to keep the love for Yahweh's Word in my heart. And uh, Yahweh definitely has a way of humbling you. We finished the book of Proverbs in our family worship, and now we're in Luke. And we did Luke, uh, what was it, Luke 11 or 12 this morning? I think it was 11 or 12, maybe 12. I believe it was 12, yeah. Luke 12 this morning, and uh, one theme, I was sharing this with Brother Randy, one theme that's been jumping out at me on every page just about of Proverbs and of Luke is humility. 
I find it, you know, I know the Bible talks a lot about being humble, but I find, I mean, you know, if you just read your Bible, throw everything out of your mind and just read your Bible and believe it. Humility is just jumping out. Every page, it seems like. It's a very key asset to a person. It's, it, it has a lot to do with making it to the kingdom. Um, we need to be humble. And, and uh, like I said, you know, when we study, the, the deeper we get in the Yahweh's Word, the more humble we're going to become. Because we're going to realize that we don't know as much as we think we do. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in this text we just read in the first 18 verses here in John 5. A lot more than meets the eye. It is at times said that Yeshua did these things to the Sabbath. It is said that he abolished the Sabbath, played down the Sabbath's importance, replaced the Sabbath with himself. You've heard people say that Jesus is my rest. You know, we don't have to keep the Sabbath because he's our rest now. It is at times said that Yeshua broke the Sabbath. And basically, there are two texts as to why these things are said. One is the text that we just read. The second one is in Matthew chapter 12, and it's in some other other of the synoptic gospels, where it records the incident of the grain field, where Yeshua went with his disciples through the fields of grain. And we won't cover that one in this message, but we will get to that. John 5.18 once again says, This is why the Judahites began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. We read that text, at least the A part of the text is what I'm going to get into in this message, hopefully. And the text says that Yeshua was breaking the Sabbath. That's what the text says. A lot of times, though, we need to ask ourselves, what does the text mean? You know, we can believe what the text says. That's true enough. But a lot of times there's a meaning to the text a meaning that is more than meets the eye, as I said. Before we go to John 5, though, I want to kind of set a stage. And I want you to look first at Deuteronomy chapter 13. As we're turning there, I want to play some kind of a pretend game here. And I want you to just think in your mind that you are a first century Israelite. You live in the first century you're there when Yeshua begins his ministry after he is baptized by Yohanan or John the Immerser. You're there. You're an Israelite, therefore you study the Tanakh. Your family reads in it diligently. They, they've taught you out of it. Your mother and father have taught you diligently the commandments in obedience to Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9. And so you have learned the Tanakh. You believe in Yahweh as your mighty one. And this prophet comes on the scene that you have never heard about. You know the prophecies in the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And so then you meet with this guy, and he claims to be the Messiah. And if you've been going by the Tanakh, then you've got to judge any prophet that comes... By what Yahweh has said. You're a first century Israelite. Not a believer in the Messiah. Look at Deuteronomy 13. This is one of the commandments that Yahweh would give you. Deuteronomy 13. Verses 1 through 5. 
If a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or wonder to you, and that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about, but he says, let us follow other gods which you have not known, and let us worship them, do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer. For Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and all your soul. You must follow Yahweh your God and fear him. You must keep his commands and listen to his voice. You must worship him and remain faithful to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death because he has urged rebellion against Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery to turn you from the way Yahweh your God has commanded you to walk. You must purge the evil from you. Now, you only have the Tanakh. That's what's read in the synagogues. You're a first century Israelite. You know this scripture where Yahweh says, if there's a prophet that rises up among you, he's a dreamer of dreams, and he tells you to do some things. He tells you to not follow Yahweh, and he tries to teach you in such a way that you are turned away from the commandments of Almighty God. Yahweh says, that man is to be put to death. I don't care if his miracles come true, if he really heals people, you know, if he's got these great wonders, and he seems to be such a good guy. If he is not telling you to follow Yahweh, and he's teaching you to disobey the commandments, that you don't have to keep the commandments, you kill him. Thus saith Almighty Yahweh. And so Yeshua comes on the scene as an Israelite prophet. And if Yeshua would have taught people to break the Sabbath, or if he would have broken the Sabbath, then by Yahweh's commands, the Israelites would have been right to reject him as a prophet. They would have been following Yahweh's command in Deuteronomy 13, if he would have done that. I will go so far to say that there is no way possible that Yeshua could have been the Messiah if he taught people to disobey Yahweh's laws. He could not have been the Messiah. Thus saith Yahweh, Deuteronomy chapter 13. So you judge prophets by the words of Deuteronomy 13. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is not something that is just taught in Deuteronomy chapter 13. A lot of people believe that Paul was what's called an antinomian. That word basically anti means against. And nomian comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. And so when they say Paul was an antinomian, they mean Paul was against the law of Yahweh. But Paul taught the same thing that Deuteronomy 13 taught. Look at 2 Thessalonians 2, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled, either by a spirit, or by a message, or by a letter, as if from us alleging that the day of Yahweh has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. 
Here Paul is speaking against this man, and he calls him the man of lawlessness. You could say it like this, the man without Torah. And he then calls him the son of destruction. Why? Because it was understood by Israelites that Deuteronomy 13 said, any prophet that comes preaching against Torah should be destroyed. So Paul calls this man of lawlessness, this man without Torah, a son of destruction. Look at verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary publicizing that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I told you about this? And you know what currently restrains him so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Even in Paul's day, there was false doctrines going around that you didn't have to obey the Torah. It's already at work, Paul says. But the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed. And the Lord Yeshua will destroy him, as Deuteronomy 13 commands, with the breath of his mouth, and will bring him to nothing with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all kinds of faults, miracles, signs, and wonders. This man of Torahlessness, this man without law, he can perform miracles, he can perform signs, and he can show you great wonders. And let me tell you, it is going to deceive many people. And it's already deceived a lot of people today. Because there are preachers that are performing signs and wonders. And I believe some of them are really doing it. But people are believing them over Yahweh. Deuteronomy 13 says Yahweh's showing you this to see if you love Yahweh. To see if you love Yahweh. He's testing you to see if that's where your heart is. Is your heart with a prophet? Seems like a good fella. Never teaches the laws of Yahweh. Never talks about the commandments of Yahweh. Never preaches messages on the laws of Yahweh. Is your heart with Him? Or is it with the Almighty Yahweh? Look at this. Verse 10. And with every unrighteous deception among those who are perishing, they perish because they did not accept the love of the truth in order to be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth, but enjoyed unrighteousness. You know what Psalms 119 tells us is truth? It says, your law, your Torah is truth. David says, it's truth, it's righteousness, it's for the upright. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of Yahweh. Psalm 119 verse 1. So I believe that Yeshua taught in accordance with Yahweh's law. He taught in accordance with, with the Torah, with the established commandments of Almighty Yahweh. And that's how we, by Yahweh's command, are supposed to test prophets. If they serve Yahweh, and if they teach the Torah. That's how you test a prophet. Deuteronomy 13, 1-5. Look at 1 John chapter 3. See, Yeshua, the Bible teaches that Yeshua was without sin. And, of course, sin, we're going to read about its definition in 1 John 3, verse 4. And we're going to show that our Messiah was without sin. 
First John three verses four through first uh, John three four through eight. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is the breaking of law. And so when you go when you hear things about people need to be delivered from sin, they need to be brought out of sin, what that automatically implies is is that whether the people know it or not that saying that, they believe that there's a law that still applies for today. Because if there's no law, then there would be no sin. Sin only exists where there is law. Because sin is the breaking of the law. If we tore down, if Conyers decided to tear down all of the stop signs, then it would, you know, and say, you know, it's no more law that you stop at these, at these places, then it wouldn't be a sin to not stop at those places anymore. Sin is only the breaking of the law. Okay? Verse 5. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. There is no lawlessness in him, this one that was revealed. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed. This tells you about verse 5. You know he was revealed. Verse 9 says, The Son of God was revealed for this purpose to destroy the devil's works, to destroy the works of this man of lawlessness that's induced or, or, or has this spirit of, of, of Satan, of Satan, working within him. This is why the Son of God was manifested, to destroy sin. Not to destroy law, but to destroy sin. Okay? Now, Yeshua was perfect. He was sinless. When I, that's what I mean when I say he was perfect. Look at Leviticus chapter 1. It is commonly taught, and, and rightfully so, that the animal sacrifices, son, the animal sacrifices during the time of Moses and the priesthood was a shadow of Yeshua the Messiah. They looked forward to Yeshua the Messiah, the animal sacrifices. Now, I think that that is a correct teaching. Look at Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 3. And there is so many passages I could go to, but one will be sufficient. Leviticus 1, 1 through 3. Then Yahweh summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When any of you brings an offering to Yahweh from the livestock, you may bring your offering from the herd or the flock. If his gift is a burnt offering from the herd, he is to bring an unblemished male. Notice unblemished. Look at verse 10. But if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he is to present an unblemished male. Also turn over to Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a fellowship sacrifice and he is presenting an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he must present one without blemish before Yahweh. So Yahweh required animal sacrifices given to him to be without blemish. The word without blemish in Hebrew is the word tamim. And it's defined by words, by various lexicons, by these words. Listen, it's perfect, complete, whole, entire, sound, safe, secure, upright in conduct, blameless, integrity, entire, and truth. Because sometimes this word tamim refers to people, upright or blameless people. Sometimes it refers to animals. Talking about that they're whole, that they're not sick, that they don't aren't missing one eye, that they don't have scours, 
It's hard to get rid of, right? Those of you that have raised animals. Brother Arnold knows about this. These are defected animals. These are the ones Yahweh says, you don't bring them to me. You bring things without blemish to me. This was so important. Look at Malachi chapter 1. The book of Malachi is the last book in our order of books in the, uh, in the Tanakh, in the Old Testament. Malachi 1. We're going to begin at verse 6. Malachi 1 verse 6. I want you to listen to how important this was to Almighty Yahweh. Malachi 1 6. <clears throat> Yahweh speaking through the prophet. A son honors his father and a servant his master. But if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is your fear of me? Says Yahweh of hosts to you priests who despise my name. But Yahweh here speaking. He says, listen, an earthly son honors his father. If, if, if there's a master and he has a servant, the servant obeys his master. He says, but if I'm your father and your master, then where in the world is my honor? I haven't been getting any honor from you. Priests. He's talking to the priests here. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? They wonder. Well, how have we despised your name? I talk to people sometimes, witness to them, and they think, well, how have I, how have I done wrong? How have I fallen short? And it's, the question is asked is because they don't know, they don't have the mind of Yahweh's law. They think they're a good person. But when they place their life up against the backdrop of Yahweh's law, then sin becomes recognizable, and then the need for the Savior becomes recognizable. You can't teach about a Savior without first teaching about sin. Because sin shows people that they need a Savior. Okay? Verse 7. Yahweh tells them how they've despised His name by presenting defiled food on my altar. You ask, how have we defiled you when you say Yahweh's table is contemptible? When you present a blind animal for sacrifice, is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal, is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asks Yahweh of hosts. And now ask for God's favor. Will he be gracious to us since this has come from your hands? Will he show us or will he show any of you favor? Asks Yahweh of hosts. I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. Think about this. They're going into the temple, to the holy place now. You know, he had the two holy places in the, in the tabernacle or in the temple. One was called the holy place. The other one was the most holy place. It was only entered in once a year. So they go into this holy place where this altar is. And they're kindling the fire and getting ready to sacrifice these animals. But Yahweh says, I wish you'd just shut the temple so you don't kindle a useless fire on my altar anymore. You know, that's how Yahweh feels when we don't live for him during the week and we try to come here and worship him on Sabbath. That's how Yahweh feels. According to Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Wash your hands, then come and pre present them to me. Cleanse your hearts, you evildoers. Then you come and worship me. You know, he doesn't want us living like Satan and then trying to think that we're going to be okay if we just show up for a couple hours on Sabbath. It's not how it works with Yahweh. Finishing out verse 10, he says, I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of hosts. And I will accept no offering from your hands, for my name will be great among the nations. See, he's jealous for his name. Exodus 20 in the second commandment says, For I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God. From the rising of the sun to its setting, incense and pure offerings, 
will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says Yahweh of hosts. But you are profaning it when you say the Lord's table is defiled and its product, its food is contemptible. You also say, look, what a nuisance. And you scorn it, says Yahweh of hosts. You bring stolen, lame, or sick animals. You bring this as an offering. Am I to accept that from your hands, asks Yahweh? The deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock and makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says Yahweh of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He said the man that has a flock, he's going to make an offering to Yahweh, and he has this good animal he could offer, but he kind of hides his eyes from that and gives Yahweh the defective animal. He said, you are cursed, old man. You are trying to deceive me, but I know the heart. I know the heart. So you see how important it was. Yahweh says it's, de- it's despising his name if these Israelites bring, bring defective animals to his altar. It is a stench in y- to Yahweh's name. So don't bring me what's lame and what's sick. I want the robust buck, Billy. I want the good one. I want the one that your flesh doesn't want to get rid of. Brother, this goes along with what you're saying. This works in the spiritual too. You know, when we come to present ourselves before Yahweh here, Yahweh don't want us half-heartedly doing things. He wants the best. Aren't we supposed to be living sacrifices to Yahweh? He wants the best. Hallelujah. He wants you to cry your eyes out. He wants you to have that heartfelt worship. He says, you, you think you're deceiving me if you bring that defective worship to me? Take that to your governor. Would he be pleased with it? <laughs> Come on. Would the president be pleased with it? How much less me? I'm not pleased with it. It's very important. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, we've seen just how important it is for the Israelites to bring unblemished animals to Yahweh as a sacrifice. 1 Peter chapter 1. And there is so much more involved in this, but this one scripture will be good enough. 1 Peter 1, verses 18 through 20. For you know that you are redeemed. The word redeemed means to buy something back. And this is obviously speaking of Israel. Israel was bought by Yahweh. They were divorced by Yahweh. And then redeemed means to be bought back. So the only people that can be redeemed is Israel. Okay. So it says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from the fathers. And there's something to that. I don't want to get to it right now. But not with perishable things like silver or gold. In other words, Peter's telling these Israelites, he says, listen, you were bought back not with, not with silver and gold, things that moths can corrupt and things that can be stolen. You were not redeemed, bought back with these things, but you were bought back with something that's not perishable. Look at verse 19. But with the precious blood of the Messiah, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish, he was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of times for you. See, Yeshua didn't exist before he walked on this earth, before he was birthed, before he had a beginning. He was destined. He was foreknown. But he was manifest. The word manifest means to be revealed. He was revealed not in the former times, but in these latter times, in these last times, for Israel. His blood 
bought them back. Redeemed them from their sin. It's not perishable like silver and gold. And notice it says of the Messiah, like a lamb without blemish or without spot. Those animals were foreshadowing the Messiah. He had to be without sin. He had to be without Torah violation. Or else he could not be our Savior. So this ideology about Yeshua breaking the Sabbath is not looking good. Because he would not be able to be Israel's Savior, would he? If he violated Shabbat. He couldn't have died on the torture stake for our sins. It would have been one sinner dying for another sinner. And a sinner can't die on behalf of the sins of another. But a sinless man can. The first man, Adam, sinned. Failed. Second Adam, he didn't. He brings back what the first man lost. Through the first man, the Bible says, comes death. But through the second man, Christ, the Messiah, comes the resurrection of the dead. Let's move along here. So therefore, Yeshua could not have sinned. He did not sin. He never once broke the Torah. And it's, it's more proper to say it like this, because I've had some people say that Yeshua did not, or, or they say it like this. I almost messed myself up. Yeshua kept all the Torah. Now, that's not the best way to say that. Because there's certain laws that Yeshua could, can't keep. There's laws in the Torah that only apply to women. And because Yeshua is not a woman, he doesn't keep those laws. Okay? There's laws in the Torah that only apply to Levitical priests. Yeshua is not from Levi, is he? So those laws don't apply to him. So it's not technically accurate to say that he kept all the laws. But it is accurate to say this. He never transgressed the laws of Yahweh. He never broke the laws of Yahweh. Not one of them. Or else he would have had that defect. And he couldn't have been Yahweh's lamb. Like John one twenty nine says, when Yohanan says, Behold the Lamb of Elohim that takes away the sin of the world. He couldn't have been that unblemished lamb, could he? This is what the Bible teaches. And so that right there, that Yeshua broke the Sabbath. I know John 5.18, you say, well, Brother Matthew 5.18 says that. But we've established now that Yeshua could not have sinned. Paul didn't believe, obviously, that he could have sinned. He talked about this man of lawlessness that's going to come in. and is going to deceive people with signs and wonders and all these things. But he's not going to teach Torah, right? Even Apostle Paul taught this now. People that people think Paul was anti-law. He talks about this son of destruction, this Torahless man. So Paul was pro-law. He had kept Yahweh's laws, the jots and the tittles. What we've got to understand is that there's a difference between tradition and Torah, tradition and law. This will help us understand about John 5. See, there is something that even the Jews of, of today, the modern-day Jews today, live in you know, Palestine, New York, different places around the world, they believe in two codes of law. And this is vital for you to understand in order to properly comprehend John 5.18. They don't only believe in the written Torah, which is what we've got here, the books of Moses. They believe in something called the oral Torah. Okay? Eventually, when it all was bundled up, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second, it's known as the today the Talmud. And the word Talmud basically just means study. 
And they exalt the oral Torah, the Talmud, over the written Torah. And so even when a Jew today or when a Pharisee of Yeshua's day spoke of the law, they didn't just have in their mind the written law. They had in their mind the written law and the oral law. Oral meaning obviously spoken. Not necessarily written, but spoken, handed down by speech. Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, 13, 10, and 6, notice what he says about the Pharisees and their traditions. And Josephus wrote around the time of Messiah. Listen to this. He says, what I would now explain is this, that the Pharisees have delivered to the people a great many observances by succession from their fathers, which are not written in the laws of Moses. And for that reason, it is that the Sadducees reject them and say that we are to esteem those observances to be obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are derived from the tradition of our forefathers. And concerning these things, it is that, these, that great disputes and differences have arisen among them. While the Sadducees are able to persuade none but the rich, and have not the populace obsequious, I guess, to them, but the Pharisees have the multitude on their side. That's end of quote. Josephus records that the Pharisees, they delivered to the people a great many observances that are not found written in the law of Moses. Sadducees say, no, we just want to go by what's written. The Pharisees say, no. And it's because they believed in what was called the oral Torah. It wasn't even written down at that time. Nowadays, in the Talmud, the oral Torah, even it, has been codified or written down. And it is what we call the Talmud today. At that time, it was not written down, though. So what is the oral Torah? Well... Modern Jews and Pharisees in Yeshua's day believed that God not only gave Moses a law that he wrote down, but they believed that God also gave Moses an oral law, a spoken law, that was then handed down to Joshua, and then Joshua handed it to the 70 elders, or maybe vice versa, and then to the prophets, and then eventually to the Pharisees, to the Jews there of Yeshua's day. Not only did Yahweh, they say, give Moses a law that Moses wrote down. But they gave Moses, or Yahweh gave Moses a law that he spoke to Moses and Moses didn't write down. And Moses handed that law down orally. This is what Jews today believe. This is what the Pharisees believed. But I don't believe that Yeshua believed this. And I think this is what got their dander up, so to speak. So basically, the Jews believe that you cannot understand the Torah without the Talmud. The Talmud gives the specifics. The Torah just gives broad overviews. I'm not saying that they believe the Talmud and the Torah are equal in importance. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they believe the Talmud is greater in importance than the Torah. You cannot understand the Torah, the written law, without the oral law, what's found in the Talmud. And the Talmud's basically made up of what's called the Mishnah and the Gemara. The Mishnah means repetition. The Mishnah was when, in about the 2nd century A.D., after the time of the Messiah, a, uh, a rabbi, quote-unquote, he codified the oral law. He wrote the oral law down. And then the Gemara, which means completion, that word means completion, is like a commentary on the Mishnah. And then with the Mishnah and the Gemara being placed together, we have what's called the Talmud, which means studied. And so you can go to a library or you can go into the house or the home of many Orthodox Jews today, and they won't just have the written Torah, but they'll have what's called the Talmud. 
And that's what they exalt above the written Torah. Okay? <clears throat> Let me give you a, a couple of quotes here. According to the contemporary Orthodox scholar H. Chaim Shemel, the Jewish people, quote, do not follow the literal word of the Bible, nor have they ever done so. They have been fashioned and ruled by the verbal interpretation of the written word, end of quote. And this is from a book called The Oral Law, A Study of the Rabbinic Contribution to Torah, put out in 1987. Here's another rabbi, a leading 19th century authority. He lived in the 1800s. Jewish rabbi. The Talmud indicates that the words, quote, that were transmitted orally by God are more valuable than those transmitted in writing. This rabbi also goes on to say this, quote, Allegiance to the authority of the said rabbinic tradition is binding upon all the sons of Israel. Ellipsis. And he who does not give adherence to the unwritten law and the rabbinic tradition has no right to share in the heritage of Israel. End of quote. This is from the Student's Guide through the Talmud, translated and edited by Jacob Schachter in 1960. There was also a famous rabbi amongst the Jewish people named Maimonides, or he's also called Rambam. And he basically said this, <clears throat> What if 1,000 prophets of the caliber of Elijah and Elisha tell you that the Torah means one thing, but 1,001 sages tell you it means something else. And a sage is a rabbi. Who do you follow? This is what Maimonides said. The final ruling is in accordance with the 1,001 sages. This is in the beginning of the Talmud. As Rambam is expressing. If you've got 1,000 prophets telling you the Torah says one thing. But the 1,001 rabbis tell you it means something else. You follow the rabbis. You do not follow the prophets. <clears throat> the Bible teaches by itself that the written law is the only law of Almighty Yahweh. There's just a couple passages. I'm going to close with these. I want to look first at Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And once again, there's a lot more scriptures that prove this, but I'm just going to go to two. One in Deuteronomy and one in in Exodus. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24 through 26. When Moses had finished writing down on a scroll every single word of this law, notice that every single word of this law, he commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of Yahweh's Covenant, take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. And that was every single word of the Torah of Yahweh. Look at Exodus chapter 24. Exodus 24, verses 3 through 4. The Bible says, Moses came and told the people all the commands of Yahweh and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice, We will do everything that Yahweh has commanded. And Moses wrote down all the words of Yahweh. He rose early the next morning and set up an altar and twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel at the base of the mountain. And that's two, probably out of ten, maybe more, scriptures that talk about the only law that Yahweh gave 
was the one that was written down by Moses. If you don't understand this, I am, I'm becoming more and more persuaded that you will not understand the ministry of Yeshua. And I think that it has a lot to do even with some of the epistles of Paul in Colossians and in Galatians. I think that a lot of it has been misunderstood because people do not recognize the life setting at the time that Paul wrote or that Yeshua taught. See, they were up against not anything like 2008. They were up against tradition that had been exalted above written law. And I want to get into more of this uh, on, the, on the new moon. But this, I believe, is the explanation of John 5.18 and of also many other passages in the, uh, in the uh, gospel writings. And so there's a lot more to get into, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut it off right there and we'll continue this during the um, new moon service. Let's stand and have a word of prayer as we close.